HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Kat Johnson kicked the season off with an episode about food and football, so now we're turning to one of my favorite sports, talking about cookbooks. We'll take a sneak peek at a few recipe breakthroughs that Rose Levy-Berenbaum discovered while working on her 12th cookbook. You know, so this was such a eureka thing. People ask me if I still keep learning... And yeah, just thinking about it and trying to find a better way. It happens. And hear about the challenges of writing a book about alcohol from HRN host Souther Teague. The history of drinking is very blurry because people were drinking and no one was writing, taking notes. Plus, we'll get all the expert dish about the most exciting cookbook titles heading to bookstores this fall. Like jazz music, it's been a part of American cuisine for, for centuries. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the next episode drops. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Kristen McGlory, a food writer, creative director at Food 52, and author of Genius Desserts. In this episode, we'll talk to Kristen about crowdsourcing at Food 52. What makes a recipe genius? And as always, we'll hear her Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen... We launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Recipes were both something that mattered to Julia and something she loved. She saw recipes as a guide to help home cooks, both adventurous and novice. There were roadmaps to revered dishes and tools for cooks to challenge themselves and create personal gifts for loved ones. 
Now be forewarned. There's a movement apace to denigrate the value of recipes. I understand where this is coming from. If you're too reliant on recipes, you may not learn the fundamentals of good cooking. But like so many things, it's starting to be taken to extremes. And as Julia fans know, Julia was all about moderation. While she strongly believed in the value of recipes, she also believed in training oneself to become an intuitive cook. Being a good cook is an amazing combination of scientific understanding and feel learned with experience. It's true that being reliant on recipes can be a crutch and maybe a hurdle to gaining skills. However, that does not mean recipes have suddenly become unimportant. They're actually incredibly valuable for discovery, preservation of ideas, sharing, and learning new methods. And good recipe writing, that's also a skill. Someone who knows all about this duality and the importance of great recipes is Kristen McGlory. Her column at Food52, Genius Recipes, showcases the best tried-and-true recipes and has inspired a second cookbook in the best-selling Genius Recipe series. She's here to tell us all about what makes for Genius Recipes, a topic that I think Julia would have loved jumping into, so I kind of feel her sitting on my shoulder, listening in attentively. We'll see if she pipes up. On a side note, it's with pride that we caught a thank you in the book to Lena Vong, who was a Julia Child Foundation fellow at Food52, who helped Kristen with the book's early stages. It's wonderful to feel like the foundation had a tiny hand helping get the project off the ground. On that note, welcome to the podcast, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. My pleasure. It's great that you could be here. I'm always excited to talk about a new cookbook and the value of recipes, especially genius ones. But before we dive into that, could you just give us a little bit of an overview about what Food 52 is for our listeners who might not already know about it? Sure. Um, Food 52 is an online community that gives you everything you need for a happier kitchen and home in one place. So that means recipes. We have a shop where we have all kinds of smart kitchen and home goods. Um, We have a hotline where you can get answers in real time when you're having a kitchen emergency from other home cooks. And then we have all kinds of other things going on, videos, a podcast, Um, you know, our our social channels always have a buzzing community, things going on. So does that sum it up pretty well? Yeah. Well, I guess I'll ask you some follow-ups to give a little bit more color. Is is it a commercial website or an editorial website or is it kind of a hybrid of both? It's both. So in addition, it's also a community website. So our three sort of tenets are content, community, and commerce. So we have, um, you know, recipes and really great stories. We find great products that we, you know, are excited to tell our audience about. And then we also have a community that is constantly interacting with us and with each other and kind of powering the whole thing. So it's kind of about the interplay between those three things? Exactly. And who makes up your audience? Is it, is, is it really broad? Is it just, does it skew really female or what have you found? Uh, it is really broad. You know, in the early days, it started with people who were really passionate home cooks because we started with these recipe contests. And as we've grown and and the things that we do have grown, 
we've found ourselves attracting more and more new cooks and just people who are interested in home design and and organization and travel and so it it just kind of keeps growing. And would you say it's for people of all ages or is it really for like super web savvy people or you definitely don't have to be very web savvy. Um, so yeah, all, all ages. I think you, there might be a, um, legal disclaimer that you can only use the site if you're over 21 because there's alcohol content, Mm. (laughs) but other than that, it's all fair game. And I assume that you are sort of indicating that self-edited, you're not actually checking and kicking people off if, if, unless they've told you. Of course. Yeah. It's, it, you know, one of those things when you sign up for the website. When you register, right? Can you use it without registering or you have to be a registered user? No, you can use it. Um, you know, you can even print recipes if you're not a registered user. We have a lot of, of lurkers. But then if you want to comment on the recipes or give advice or use the hotline, do you need to register for that? Yes, exactly. So I'm really fascinated by crowdsourcing, and I think a lot of people are familiar with it from um, things like, you know, fundraising. But when when you're talking about crowdsourcing recipes and content, could you tell us a little bit more about how Food52 uses crowdsourcing? Sure. You know, we honestly use it in everything we do. Uh, When we first started, it was these recipe contests. So all of the recipes were added to the site by people all over the world. And then we uh, would sort of add a layer of testing and editing and photographing um, and finding the recipes that we thought had something interesting and special about them. But then as we've grown, the crowdsourcing has kind of flown into all the different things we do. So, um, you know, we take suggestions for our shop. We work with a community of makers in our shop as well and kind of collaborate with them. So that's another different layer of crowdsourcing. And then with Genius Recipes, I it's completely powered by tips from the community. So why, why don't we talk about that now? Because I wanted to ask you what makes for a Genius Recipe. And I read a bit about this, but I'm still not totally clear that I understand exactly the interplay between how they're crowdsourced and then how you work with the expert writers of them or whether you still feature ones from the community. So tell us more about what makes for a Genius Recipe and how you collected them for your column. Sure. Um, So I've been doing this for, I think, about seven years now. And they've always been crowdsourced from the community, from tips. But the recipes themselves are fundamentally, we call them the recipes that will change the way you cook. So they have some special twist or surprising detail that makes them memorable and very iconic. And they tend to come from already published sources of one kind or another, um, cookbooks, blogs, you know, or directly from chefs as well. So in fact, Julia, I featured a recipe of hers a few years back. Um, actually coincidentally, I think I may have run it on her hundredth birthday Mm. and it was this zucchini tian where you 
add just a little bit of rice to the casserole and that kind of absorbs some of the extra liquid and it just becomes this really like buttery, delicious tasting zucchini casserole for summer without adding a lot of extra fat and flour and some of the heavier things you would see in a gratin in the winter. Well, that's neat. I hadn't, I had looked at some, but I hadn't caught that one. I'll have to see if it's still, still there. I definitely would have not thought of adding. Oh, okay. And yeah, we'll let, we'll talk about the cookbooks in in a second, but can we take a step back? How did the sort of discovery, what was the genesis for the Genius Recipes column? How did that start even? You know, in the early days uh, with my bosses, Amanda and Merrill, co-founders of Food 52, I, I should, I suppose, say their full name since you don't all know them as well as I do. Um, Amanda Hester and Merrill Stubbs. Thanks. Uh, they founded Food 52 in 2009, and I joined the team shortly thereafter. And we would always find ourselves talking about certain recipes that just kind of latch on in your memory. And then the way that you think about making that dish in the future is forever influenced by that. So, mm-hmm. you know, Marcella Hazan's tomato sauce with butter and onion is a perfect example. Mm. And that was one of the recipes that we were constantly talking about. And that recipe, if, if for anyone who's not familiar, is, you know, instead of making a marinara sauce that you simmer all day and you build in all these layers of flavor, Marcella Hazan's recipe is simply tomatoes, either canned or fresh, uh, half an onion, and part of a stick of butter. And you don't even chop the onion. And they just simmer together for about a half hour or so. And they make this really pure, delicious tomato sauce that you didn't need to cook all day. And it kind of makes you think, I'll never buy a jar of tomato sauce again. There's no reason. That would be a good thing for everybody but the tomato sauce manufacturers. Sure. <laughs> and so, wait, now I'm curious because I did read about this. Is, is it a, you, do you cut the onion at all or you put a whole onion and then you like remove it? You cut it in half mm-hmm. and you take the peel off and probably like the little nubby end, but it stays intact. And then when you serve the sauce, do you take it out or you serve it with? You know, she had me remove it, but sometimes I'll just leave it in because at that point it's sort of softened and, and, you know, becomes delicious in its own right. Some people will then chop it up and throw it back in. Some people will just puree it straight in. But the point is that you don't have to do a lot of chopping and sauteing in advance. You just toss Well, I think this is one of the things that I noticed you don't talk a huge amount about, and maybe that's to make it more accessible, but I'm going to use the dirty word of science and chemistry, and I think that the genius recipes are actually a representation of these that how much chemistry and science there is to cooking, and usually these tricks are representative of a sort of scientific process that's either being you know, shortcutted or, or leveraged to do it. Do you guys talk about that internally when you put the recipes together? Um, you know, I, I love the science part of it when it has something really tangible that you can 
hold on to and remember why you're doing it. So, you know, a lot of times, like Kenji Lopez Alt's recipes, I've featured a number of times in Genius Recipes, and he does an amazing job of teasing out what in the food science is, you know, making your smash burger so much more delicious than a burger you don't smash, for example. It's the Maillard reaction. So I try to, you know, find the happy balance between, you know, how much is too much information. I I think of the things that I would want to tell a friend at a dinner party. Mm. Yeah, no, I can see that because it makes it more memorable to know what the trick is and that it works than to have to remember the trick, why it works, what the science is, and then the list gets too long and people get overwhelmed. Yeah, and that makes it more memorable for the next time you want to go make the thing. And you can impress people with the magic. Yeah. So before we get more into the Genius books, let's talk a little bit more about Food 52 and how the site's evolved and that it has lots of content in it. And I thought it would be helpful if for those people listening who might not have checked it out yet and want to go to it, do you have any kind of suggestions of how to start as a first way to get acquainted or, you know, kind of get into all the different things that the the Food 52 offers? Sure. Um, it, it helps to think about what you like to do when you're, you know, c- I guess consuming media, for lack of a better term. You know, if you really love flipping through your Instagram feed, definitely follow us on Instagram. Um, and we're on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and all those things, too, if those are your favorite place to go um, to get inspiration Uh, If you are someone who really loves watching YouTube videos, subscribe there. Or if you just really love, you know, kind of immersing yourself in new recipes and new ideas, the website is, you know, a great place to go kind of lose yourself. And where would you start on the website with, or, or you were saying tackle it based on what your greatest interest, whether it's gadgets, recipes, or columns or. Yeah. You know, if I were just looking for food stories, I would go to food52.com and go to the features tab. And that's where you can see, you know, these are the, the stories about cooking. These are the stories about travel. These are the stories about wellness and, and things in that vein. It, it's pretty well broken down there. So sort of your recommendation to start start with your greatest area of interest and kind of let yourself be guided from there. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be back to talk to Kristen more about her new Food 52 cookbook, Genius Desserts. But be warned, the conversation is liable to make you very hungry. We'll be right back. As autumn sneaks up on us, we all want to take advantage of late summer produce, like apples for something sweet or spinach for something savory. Both go very well in pie or pastry crusts. Not surprisingly, Julia embraced technology early on. Her groundbreaking cookbook, The Way to Cook, offers a master recipe on making ace pastry dough using the food processor. Once you have the ingredients assembled, it's about a five-minute process, and voila! 
your own homemade dough. Just remember you need to allow enough time, at least two hours, to chill the dough before you can make a crust. Julia's other big tip is to use pastry flour instead of all-purpose flour, as a lower gluten content in pastry flour produces a more tender crust. When Julia wrote The Way to Cook, it can be difficult to easily find pastry flour in your local store. But leave it to Bob's Red Mill to offer not one, but three kinds of pastry flour, from whole wheat, organic whole wheat, to unbleached white. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code Julia's Kitchen Pod, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on all its pastry flours. Now that we know how Kristen pioneered the Genius Recipe concept, let's get into the cookbook, Genius Desserts, which, as the title implies, is a compendium of top-rated desserts from well-known chefs, cooks, and food writers. So, Kristen, can we go back to just remind everyone, or if someone's just joining us, how Genius Desserts is and isn't a crowdsourced cookbook? Sure. Um, So for this book, maybe even more so than the last cookbook, uh, which was just Genius Recipes, um, and maybe even more so than the column, this book was really deeply crowdsourced because not only did I, you know, just kind of do my normal thing and take in tips from the community over the years, you know, that gave me a great base to start from, but then knowing that I had, you know, a year or so to develop what was going into the book, I thought about all the places that I wanted to dig deeper and who I wanted to ask for help. And so I went directly to the community and posted, you know, my criteria for what I wanted in this book and, you know, for them to share the recipes that they have made for years and years, the recipes that they have just discovered that, you know, made them get rid of the chocolate cake they've been making for years and years. Um, And then I also went to every one I could think of who might have come across a really interesting dessert recipe over the years. So food editors, food writers, um, test kitchen directors, uh, people I knew who were just really passionate home bakers. I, I did a ton of outreach. And then I also went to chefs themselves who I thought might have some of the kind of secret tricks that hadn't been shared yet. And then just kind of got them on the phone or took them to coffee and, and got recipes directly from them as well. And then finally I went back to the community with a list of, I think about 17 or 18 desserts that I wanted in the book, but hadn't found yet because sometimes giving a specific prompt will jog someone's memory. Mm-hmm. So, and how many recipes did you cull from down to make the final hundred? Oh my gosh. I tried to count <laughs> because I had this idea in my mind that I had tested something like a thousand recipes, which I don't think I could prove, <laughs> 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 but I t- did try to count and it was hundreds and hundreds. I see. And so of the final recipes that made the cut, like I, in looking through it, I, I think I recognized a lot of well-known names of both chefs and food writers and chefs that are food writers. And are there any recipes in the book that actually are from a community member and that were discovered or they really are a sort of representation of the best of the, the polished professionals? For the most part, these are from people who 
have dedicated their careers to learning more about food and whether that's in, you know, writing cookbooks or being a pastry chef or um, in some other ways, they're, you know, day in and day out working with food. Well, that's interesting to me. Can we delve into that for a second? Because I'm I'm a little bit obsessed with not denigrating bloggers, but the idea that there is really something to writing a recipe well and doing food writing well that you need some training. And it's kind of interesting to me that with crowdsourcing and all that feedback and the community that you have, what did bubble up as the best recipes or the ones that were genius were from sort of seasoned professionals that had been tried and true. Did you did you guys internally kind of analyze that or talk about that? Or has that been your finding that that's really the case? Or is it maybe just a fluke? I, I don't think we've ever really tried to compare. It's more just that this is kind of how we've defined genius recipes from the beginning. You know, there are recipes on Food 52 that are absolutely genius that have come from community members. You know, there's this lemon tart on the site that's from uh, a winemaker in California, and it's called Lazy Mary's Lemon Tart. Her, her name is Mary. And it, it's a whole Meyer lemon that gets blended up in a blender with the eggs and other ingredients and poured into the tart shell and baked off. But it's just those, there was such a big platform for those on food 52 itself in the recipe contests, in other ways that we highlight recipes there that we wanted to try and focus with genius recipes on these already iconic recipes, I suppose. And, you know, recipes that are from people who themselves are, our icons for their work just as like you know, a so different way of exploring great food and great recipes. I see. So there's a little bit of an echo of the, the genius is kind of double, which is this is from people to who are geniuses of a sort in their field. And it's a genius technique or trick or tip in the recipe. It's like a double thing. Yeah. And how many, of the recipes in the book are also on the site or are they actually usually two separate things? So for all of our Food 52 cookbooks, we make a point of them being at least 50% new to the book. Just, you know, to give people a reason to want to dive into the book, um, that they're not all available online. But for this book, somehow in my research and just, going really crazy, discovering new recipes, the ratio is skewed even further to new. I think it's yeah. probably a good two-thirds new. Right. And to be clear, new, new to the book as opposed to published on the site, but they've probably been published, you know, in a cookbook from the 80s or in any number of other places, but they haven't been gathered and curated in one place yet. Yeah, no, I noticed that you did definitely cast your net wide, and a lot of them you're sort of bringing stuff back that you realized maybe, I think you even wrote that you thought certain things would be outdated, but there was so much kind of positive feedback or excitement around what is maybe a classic or almost outdated 80s recipe that that kind of changed your um, perception. Absolutely. Classics are classics. 
So I wanted to ask you, a cookbook agent I know well called Lisa Eckes, she once quoted me a stat, and I have no idea what her source is, but so I just quote her. But she said that most people, when they buy a cookbook, at most cook three or four recipes out of the book. So knowing that that is, and then I sort of realized that that kind of resonated with me in my own um, behaviors. So I was curious what you thought if, 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 if that's you and you're only going to end up cooking three or four recipes, are there any ones in the book that really stand out for you of like, you can't miss this one, you've got to try it because it so wowed everyone when we did it? That is such a tough question, of course, <laughs> since I have very strong attachments to all of these recipes. But if I were to just think of ones that both really locked in in my memory as well as ones that I've seen, you know, in, in our testing, what our staff responded to and what the community has responded to in some of the ones that we have released in the lead up to this book, I can Mm -hmm. probably whittle down a short list. (laughs) Well, well, let's go from there. What about one that, that have sort of already that been teased out in promotion for the book or that have generated some excitement or maybe feedback beyond what you expected? Sure. Um, so Dory Sanders wrote a cookbook, I think Dory Sanders Country Cooking, and her recipe in there is fresh lemon ice cream. And it is probably the easiest and the creamiest no-turn ice cream you can make. And that simply relies on the interaction between lemon juice and dairy. In this case, I think a mix of heavy cream and milk. Mm-hmm. Because when those two combine, they naturally thicken and become extra creamy. And I've seen this play out in recipes from salad dressings to other kinds of sort of custardy presentations like um an icebox cake that we also featured recently called 10 minute lime cracker pie. Mm. But in this particular instance, you're just stirring together lemon juice and zest, heavy cream and milk and a little sugar, and then putting it in like an eight by eight pan in the freezer. And you stir it once as it's freezing and it becomes totally scoopable as if you had made a custard and churned it and did all the things that you normally would do. <laughs> that secret science creeping in again. Yeah, there it is. The science right, the, secret, the secret is you have to do this with certain ingredients because scientifically it doesn't work with all flavorings. It's because of the unique qualities of what's in lemon juice, I assume. Yeah, and um, it's, it's about the acid level. So, you know, lime juice is a a pretty close substitute that works, but if you were to go with orange juice, you wouldn't have quite enough acid. So you might, you know, you could experiment with it, but you might need to add in some lemon or lime to bump up the acid enough to work. Mm. Otherwise it probably wouldn't thicken the cream as much and will be a little bit icier. Yeah. And it's the amazing, the the chemical um, combination that creates something that simulates what you have to do a lot of work for with other ingredients. Mm-hmm. Got it. And actually, when we were shooting that recipe, you know, it's a lovely recipe, but it, there's not a lot of visual texture. It's very just smooth and creamy, and it's obviously not 
bright yellow because you don't add any food coloring or anything. Mm-hmm. So we were thinking about ways to add texture in the photo. And I um, had tested this other recipe from the restaurant Estella and from their new cookbook that is candied sesame seeds. And it's simply just sesame seeds that have been cooked down in sugar and water. And as soon as the water evaporates, the sugar has made this like light dusting of it's kind of sparkly sweetness on the outside of the seeds mm-hmm. and they're delicious and super addictive. And th- we put those on the lemon ice cream and that pairing ended up being not just visually really lovely, but so delicious that like kind of toasty sesame seed with the creamy, bright lemon ice cream. So that what we did was share that combo of recipes in the lead up to the book and people have been absolutely delighted by it. And, you know, it's the kind of recipe that you can make in your own kitchen whenever, but also, you know, if you're at a friend's house for the weekend who doesn't have a lot of equipment um, or, you know, if you've gone to a, a rental, like an Airbnb or something and they don't have much, you can make this recipe pretty much in any kitchen. Well, and that's also really unexpected. I I don't think I would have ever thought of combining sesame seeds in something, you know, primarily lemon flavored. So that's even very unexpected that they taste nice together. Yeah, we came up with all kinds of surprising discoveries along the way. Well, I think that just says the book is extremely well done and it has a huge number of helpful tips on baking and making desserts. And it also has lovely photography and I've already picked out, I've got my list of three recipes. I'm, I'm dying to try almost a lot out of nostalgia, like the grasshopper shake that takes me right back to my childhood. Nigella's no turn coffee ice cream, which works in a similar way to the, the lemon ice cream because of the chemistry with, I assume the ingredients of coffee and then also the whole it's orange a little cake. Different. That one is more about the um, the sweetened condensed milk is already quite thick, and mm. then you're whipping it more aggressively than you do with the other ones with uh, heavy cream as well. So it's it, it's more about the whipping there. It's not quite as much of the chemical acid reaction. So that one's a, a little bit of a level up in the amount of work you have to do to make the magic happen. Yes, but it's a it's a pretty small level. <laughs> yes, compared to traditional ice cream making. Yeah. And what's so your the, other, well, you were just saying, I was going to pick up on the, I was thrown actually thinking about my own Airbnb experiences, and that could be a whole endeavor of how you like adapt your cooking when you're in Airbnb, and suddenly you find they have three really sophisticated pieces of equipment, but then not the one that you would normally use, and how you adjust. But um, I love those kinds of artificial constraints. Yeah, no, you know, I mean, it's some, definitely it could be a whole, totally whole, haywire. Exactly. It could be a whole new avenue of cooking is how, how to how, how to think on your feet with uh, the limitations or, or I suppose a new food reality show. Yeah, yes. So on, on this book with Genius Desserts, are there a few recipes that you have really stayed with you that you already find that you're routinely now making for family and friends or recommending to people when they need something for a certain occasion? Is that, I know I'm asking you again to pick amongst your children. Yeah. Um, so the recipe that I found myself 
craving the most through all of the recipe testing when, you know, I would be tasting something like 11 or 12 desserts in a day and just totally sugared out by the end of the day um, was Alice Medrich's Nibby Buckwheat Butter Cookies because they are not very sweet. They're almost borderline savory, but they have this really unexpected nuanced flavor from the buckwheat flour and the butter, of course, and and cocoa nibs, which mm. are kind of bittersweet and crackly. And there was something about the texture and the flavor of that that even if I had had more desserts than anyone should eat in a week, I would find myself still craving those. And, you know, the good thing about those two is that they kind of freakishly last for up to a month and actually the flavor keeps developing. So I actually happen to have a big Tupperware of those around. And, you know, if I just found myself kind of in sugar withdrawal, but I didn't want something super sweet, that's what I would go to. So that's probably what I'll be making a lot during the holidays when people are, you know, maybe getting a little bit overwhelmed by sweetness. It's like the sweetness relief cookie. Yes. And do you want to give a shout out to Alice Medrick for those who might not know her her work? Because obviously she's kind of an icon of of baking um, recipes. Definitely. Her and, um, well, those cookies as well as um, there is, her best cocoa brownies are in the book as well, which are pretty amazing and have zero chocolate in them, but they do have cocoa powder. So this is kind of one of those examples where having a genius who is an absolute chocolate and baking expert is the reason that we have a recipe like this because she was, you know, dissatisfied with brownies and basically like um, disassembled them and took, <laughs> took out all their component parts, took out the melted chocolate that's in most brownie recipes, and then added things back in one by one so that she could control how they were interacting and found that cocoa was actually a better source of chocolate than, you know, unsweetened chocolate that's normally in them and cheaper. No, that that's great. And by definition, how someone is good at creating genius recipes mm-hmm. from a genius baker. So what else exciting is coming up for you with the launch of the book and um, anything that we should know about that's launching soon or coming new to Food 52? Well, for me personally, I'll be getting to go out on book tour soon, which is very exciting. I really love getting to see and interact with our community in real life. Um, So dates are still coming together for that, but it'll be announced on the site soon. If, if you share that with us, your schedule, when you have it, we'll, we'll put it out on the foundation social media so people can catch it. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, and, and then other things, Food 52? Yeah, at Food 52, we've been working, speaking of crowdsourcing, on um, a new line of products for kitchen and home that is basically developed in collaboration with our community. So, you know, if you've been 
following along at all on our social media and our videos, um, we've been doing all these polls and asking our various audiences in different places what they're looking for in their ideal cutting board, in their ideal kitchen mat, things like that. Mixing bowls, I believe, is another one. And then kind of gathering all that feedback and using it to build these products. And it's been really fun to see how opinionated people are about all of these things. Mm, yes, cutting boards. So can that'll be launching going. very soon. Yeah, I was saying the cutting boards can really everybody has anyone who's who cooks frequently has very specific ideas about what kind of cutting board they need. Exactly. And you know, if you decide on something and then they're stuck with it, you feel it every day. So it's important to get it right. Well, that's a lot of stuff to look forward to new products that are the best of the best from people who've really used them. And the um, tour for Genius Desserts. Well, we're going to come right back, and Kristen's going to reveal her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher. Or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired their, them in their career. Kristen, what's your Julia moment? I probably have one of the weirdest Julia moments that you've had on this show. Ooh. Which is, when I was about 15, I was at the mall with a friend, and... I I thought we were just there to pick up a gift for another friend of ours. And then about halfway through our shopping journey, the mall security came up to us and accused us of shoplifting. And I was such a goody two-shoes. I had no idea what was going on, but it turned out that my friend actually had been shoplifting. And so we were both taken to the sort of mall security office where they had all these TVs up along the walls and they were playing just like daytime TV shows and sports and things like that. And I had to wait for hours while they, you know, scared some sense into her, I guess, and waited for one of our moms to come pick us up. And luckily one of the TVs had a marathon of one of Julia's shows on. And I found that I really fixated on that. And I found her so comforting in that moment where, you know, I was kind of losing my innocence in a way, you know, kind of losing my trust in my friends and, and feeling like I had done something wrong, even though I didn't know what was going on. 
and still, you know, I'll go on sort of YouTube um, jags watching Julia shows and and clips from her shows now. Just when I kind of need to pick me up and when I need some comfort. And, you know, I, I really love getting lost in, you know, episodes of Baking with Julia and looking into recipes and geniuses for this book. There were a lot of roads that led to Baking with Julia. Wow, that that is a very unexpected Julia moment, but uh, but I love it. It was sort of like virtual bonding. Yeah, and it, it just kind of goes to show how how present she has been in so many people's lives, whether or not they've really gotten into cooking yet. She's been an introduction point. Cause I wasn't there yet, but she may have helped. Well, I, I I love that, and thank you very much for sharing what is actually very personal and kind of a you know obviously a kind of touchy story for you. Yes and no. I mean, I didn't shoplift. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it wasn't quite. And what what about your friend? Did Julia help scare her straight, or or you're not quite sure what happened to her? Sadly, I do not know. We've lost touch. <laughs> Well, if you're out there, let us know. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Kristen. Thanks for sharing that really unique Julia moment with us. Of course. My pleasure. And thanks, everyone else, for listening. What's your favorite genius recipe? Let us know. We might even share it with Food52. Send us an email or even a voicemail to contact juliachildfoundation.org. You can follow the foundation on social media, of course. Our handles are at juliachild on Facebook at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at tshulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. Go to food52.com to check out their mouth-watering content. And for more genius recipes, and you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram, it's at food, then the number 52. That's their handle. If you want to follow Kristen herself, her handle is at McGlorious. Just put an M and an I before the word glorious. The book is Genius Desserts, 100 Recipes That Will Change the Way You Bake by Kristen McGlory from 10 Speed Press. Order it now from your favorite online bookseller or ask for it at your local bricks and mortar store. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore, who is sadly retiring after this week's episode, but we'll miss him, and we thank him. Our theme song is New French Horn by Nuovi Veltorni. Please give us a review, which will help new listeners discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>